So I'm, uh, I'm taking this course called the Equivalent of Ethics and Enlightenment. And it, um, it's pretty interesting. It's a long, long-term course over many months exploring uh, this, these topics. And uh, it's an interesting question, um, this question of the equivalence of ethics and enlightenment. You know, how does that land for you? Um, are you interested in finding out if they're equivalent? <laughs> Do you think they are or not? Um, so I wanted to present some ideas. The course has barely, has only just started really. So, um, but some of the um, framework maybe that, that's being framed in, because I think it's helpful. And I also will offer my own, some of my own thoughts on having engaged with it. And as always, there's the invitation. That's, that's the invitation that we're all can do that for ourselves. So as far as the equivalence of ethics and enlightenment, it turns out that enlightenment is not very well defined. Um, so that's one issue. Um, but then it turns out that ethics isn't that well defined either. So that's maybe that allows for their equivalence. I don't know. Um, but you have to use some kind of an English word to translate these things that are talked about in the texts. And I want to point back in this talk actually toward some of those teachings that are offered and how it is that they've been translated. Because, you know, they've been translated through the Western mind, through filters of what we know and understand in the West, particularly about religion, but also about philosophy. So it turns out that this English word ethics, you know, what is that anyway, that has a long history in the West. And so we have to be a little careful with just applying it to something that we see in Eastern teachings. So for example, in Christianity, there's a whole study of ethics. There are whole books about it. It's a topic, you can take a course on it in religious studies, maybe several. You can major in this in some colleges. Um, it's a full way of thinking. It's a system, it's somewhat codified. Um, so in, yeah, in Western religious studies, this is a big deal. Similarly, um, even in, outside of religious studies here in the West, there is a pretty detailed secular study of ethics. There is, for example, the philosophy of ethics, which is um, pretty logical and rational. It looks for first principles. You know, what are the if you look at all the ethical codes of the world, what are the fundamental underlying principles that are being expressed here? And you can, in a scholarly way, you can try to extract those and describe them. Um, more recently, which is somewhat interesting to me, there's been something called evolutionary ethics, which talks about uh, how our sense, you know, why is it, so this points back one step farther, and it says, why is it that we're even interested in this as humans? You know, why would we want to codify this? And it says, well, there's a biological reason for this, which is that we have certain things actually built into fairly deeply into our brains and our systems about um, how we think things ought to be. 
and we have ideas about that. Anybody not have ideas about how things ought to be? They get more elaborate at the higher levels, but there's this, there's this idea that this is actually coming from something pretty deep in us. This is then more emotional and more feeling-oriented, sort of a gut sense, right? And so there are various axes along which these gut senses align. Harm and non-harm is an important one, but there's also um, like or approval and disgust. That's a, a visceral axis that we can feel. There's fair and unfair or just and unjust. And, the, and these can actually, these things can be felt and you can see them in children. You know, babies have, I don't know how early it shows up, but children seem to have some sense of fairness. And they're not using rational first principles that they thought about. You know, this is something that's coming from their emotions. And so, you know, there's a whole study of this. Along the like and disgust line, just as another example, there's um, often a visceral uh, repulsion in us about incest. We can feel that uh, if we imagine the concept of a brother and a sister or a parent and a child engaging in intimate relations, it doesn't feel right to us in a certain way. So what is that? You know, what is that going on in us? So that's maybe some of the baggage that we carry. Baggage is a loaded word, but some of what we carry as Westerners, when we think about this word ethics, we may have these ideas that are coming from our culture. In Buddhism, it's maybe slightly different. You know, it evolved in a different way. Um, it's interesting to look at the Buddhist texts. There is no Buddhist text on ethics. It's just not, it wasn't separated out that way. Um, there are ethics teachings, quite a few, but they're scattered throughout the texts. You have to extract them. There's some in every volume. Um, you have to kind of assemble them, but it's not really the same. It's not the same as it is in Christianity, where it's a whole topic that's recognized. So the impression from reading Buddhist texts is that ethics is really more integrated. It's a part of the whole. Maybe it's just assumed that this is, of course, going to be part of the process. Um, we see this particularly in the early texts, where ethics is considered to be totally inseparable from the cultivation of the path. So what, you know, what is that pointing toward? So rather than looking at first principles and rather than looking at emotions, um, maybe we could say that Buddhism looks at uh, the process that the mind goes through. It's a transformation. It's interested in the transformation of the mind from an ordinary, everyday consciousness, where there's nothing wrong with that, that's how we're born, into the potential of the human spiritual development. That's, that's more of the model that's coming in. And ethics is an integral component of that. And it's, as, as a component, it's something that will shift over time. So you start, everybody has a sense of ethics. Maybe that's what evolutionary ethics describes. It's our baseline. And then um, if you undertake spiritual practice and you cultivate your mind through meditation, you might evolve into a different way of seeing what you feel is right and not right, harm and not harm. It's going to change over time. And so in that sense, first principles may not really be uh, relevant in the Buddhist understanding of ethics. Uh, so instead, what we're cultivating is a whole ecosystem in our mind and heart. 
So first principles might not be the right way. And the single dimension of harm and not harm is also somewhat limited. So this is interesting, right? Um, so then let me turn then to somewhat of how these teachings are in the Buddhist text. So this is going to be an extraction from various places. If you read the text, you will, and also if you listen to monastic teachers in particular, you will get the impression that the five lay precepts are very important for us. Has anybody not heard of the precepts? Yeah, everyone's heard of them. So we have the five lay precepts, and they may be offered as encapsulating Buddhist ethics. You know, here it is, you're a lay person. Okay, here's these five things. Uh, that we would undertake and their practices and trainings. And monastic teachers I found in particular tend to emphasize keeping the precepts as the main ethical duty of lay people. You know, that's what we should do. It's good to meditate too, but uh, we'll start with the sila. Um, now, the one issue for us as Westerners is that as a nominal code of conduct, the five precepts, that idea brings in all of, it activates all of our stuff about the Ten Commandments or any other uh, moral codes that we may have run into in our either our spiritual life or in our institutional life. Increasingly, institutions carry moral codes also that professional ethics, for example, um, if you're a caregiver or if you're a lawyer or a doctor, something like that. So we have a lot of um, associations from our monotheistic upbringing or from our culture. Just to reiterate so that we're all on the same page, the five precepts, as stated, are stated all as abstentions, and they're stated as, this is the translation, to refrain from killing living beings, to refrain from taking that which is not given, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from false speech, and to refrain from intoxicants. So those are the fundamental first principles, if you will. Um, but the question then, if we're thinking about this transformation along the path of awakening, um, the question then is, do the five precepts carry the weight that is needed to affect this transformation? Is that the expression of sila? Is that what it means, the sila steps of the path? Um, it can be argued with, and with some deeper study to back it up that they actually don't carry the, the adequate weight for that. They are not um, sufficient in a sense I don't want to say that they're insufficient because they are, if, my goodness, if the world obeyed these, it would be a different world. <laughs> Even one of them, <laughs> if it was completely followed in the world, it would be a transformation of the globe, right? <laughs> to not do any one of those, much less all five. So they are not inadequate. Let me be careful about that. But they, um, they don't carry the... Um, as stated, as those things to follow, they don't um, maybe pervade the texts and pervade the path in the way that they don't carry the weight that they do, and say, in the Western idea of ethics, of it being much more fundamental. And it's um, that weight, you say, well, where is that then, Kim? You've built up this suspense. Probably that weight is carried by the word kusala, which is translated either as skillful or as wholesome. 
That's the, and it's opposite, akusala, unskillful or unwholesome. So this is, um, these terms are used throughout the texts. They're found much more frequently than the lists of the five precepts necessarily as things to do. Um, and they have to, they refer to two different things. They refer both to the development of the mind along the path. So we're going to cultivate skillfulness. And they refer also to our relational uh, capacity with other people and in community. Um, so they do have all the relevant dimensions. And I would say then, and I'm echoing Gil Fronstall's analysis here, is that kusala is the best candidate as the Buddhist word for ethics, as it's understood in religion, as opposed to only the precepts. So one thing about kusala, for example, is that it's very tied to practice, skillfulness. It implies a skill, something that you're going to develop or cultivate or get better at over time. And it can have many levels. Our understanding of what is skillful is going to change and refine over time. Also, it's clearly somewhat situation-dependent. That's another nice thing about Kusala, is it has the flexibility of being uh, contextual in a way that the precepts might not be. The precepts have the advantage of being clear <laughs> and definite. If they say refrain from killing, isn't that pretty clear? Although you may, your understanding of that may refine over time. But we know with skillful, we know that different situations require different actions. You know, what's skillful in one group or with one person might really not be the right thing to do in another situation. And so um, this idea of skillfulness includes that we would have to have some mindfulness. We would have to have some clear comprehension of what the situation is and our role in it, and therefore how to behave appropriately. And so you don't get the, the kind of free lunch of, um, I'm, I'm being again a little bit dramatic, but of having a, a principle in mind where it's like, okay, I just always do this. I always refrain from this. This, 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 it's always the same. No, Kusala says you have to do it a little differently in different situations. And so it requires maybe a little bit more understanding and it can then evolve over time more easily. So we're not just left entirely on our own to figure out what is skillful or unskillful. We are given some guidance on that. And it's often linked to the, both the motivation behind an action and the result of the action. It's not really only the intention, as we are sometimes told. Uh, it does actually matter what the result of the action was. But in particular, actions that bring harm are said to come from the three roots that are called akusala, the three akusala roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is not something that you need to believe, but it's, again, it's offered as a possibility. So to check, is it true that when there's harm, it, it was because there was some greed, some hatred, or some delusion in the way the action was carried out. And then conversely, actions that bring benefit tend to come from the three kusala roots of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. Um, so we can experiment and check this out for ourselves, if that's really true. I like the simple negation of the akusala roots to say instead of 
You know, the opposite of greed might be generosity, but we instead say non-greed. And I like that because it's more, it's much broader, actually, or non-hatred. You know, it could be loving kindness, but why not compassion or patience or something else? Non-delusion, clarity. Um, So there's this way in which just simply negating the um, unwholesome roots leaves a lot of space. (laughs) There's a lot of things that are, many more things that are wholesome, (laughs) in a sense, than, than unwholesome if you want to count them out that way. So, skillfulness. So, I tried to think about, you know, what's the kind of different shade of meaning that's conveyed between these two? And we could say that the precepts mostly tell us what to do or not to do. Whereas the the concept of skillful or wholesome has more to say about how, although it also includes the what. So I think it's a little broader and a little more flexible. But in particular, one implication of this that's very interesting is that it would be possible, and I'll give some examples, it is possible to undertake and act out the precepts in ways that are actually not very skillful. Right? It's possible. So, um, for example, we could get very rigid about the precepts. And you'll see this because they're, they're rules, so they're very easy to grab onto and, and cling to, essentially. So we could take them as absolute strictures, and they, um, we could uphold them in a way that brings tension to our body and mind. We're bearing down and trying hard to abstain from all these things. And if we demand that others do that, too, we can be really unpleasant. We can really uh, get irritating in, in the world. So this is not skillful. It doesn't bring about peace and harmony in us, which is the point of the path. And it doesn't bring about peace in our relations to hold the precepts as rigid strictures. So um, we have to be careful. And in fact, at the first stage of awakening, one of the things that's let go of is clinging to practices and precepts. So it's, it's recognized that people cling to these and use them unskillfully. And at some point when the mind gains enough wisdom, it sees that that's just not the way. You know, that's not part of the way. It doesn't mean we break them all then. We still uphold them, but we don't cling to them. That's the difference. So now granted, um, there is a sutta that praises uh, encouraging others to fulfill the precepts. So just so you know, they're not only intended to be uh, restricted to, the, to her own person. It says that, in particular, it says that the good person is one who abstains from the destruction of life, abstains from taking what is not given, etc. the five precepts. And then it says the person who is superior to the good person not only refrains from taking life, but also encourages others not to take life. So there is that in there. But um, we have to be careful how. Skillfulness comes in the how we do that. So as an example, um, I used to attend a meditation center that was located across the street from a Planned Parenthood clinic. And once a week, uh, a man would come out and uh, with a sign that was very graphic. It had a graphic image and some words, and he would protest in front of the clinic. And 
he um, he was an anti-abortion activist, of course, and so in his mind, and maybe by what I've just described, wasn't he encouraging others not to kill? And yet, I certainly found that his method of doing so um, didn't really resonate for me, such that I couldn't really connect very well with what he was trying to uphold or his message or his concerns. And in fact, um, if you tried to go and talk with this man, it was actually very difficult to engage him in meaningful dialogue, in meaningful conversation, because he was so um, clinging so hard to his views that it's like you couldn't, you couldn't even talk as a human being to him. So the strength and rigidity of his views uh, was essentially unskillful in, in, in serving his purpose of encouraging others not to kill, at least in my case. I mean, I, there are people who respond to that. Um, so, you know, I gave this example because it's, it really happened. It's an actual example uh, from my experience. But I can say that also it's not uh, restricted to any particular position on the political spectrum. Uh, there are people located all over the political spectrum, including on the opposite side, who have very rigid views, who you can't talk to them because uh, they're so clear that they're right, and they're so clear that they want you to behave this way or that way. Boy, you get a lot of that in this season because we're coming up to an important election, and I can't, there's, every day there's something on my door, a thing in my message box telling me what I need to do. So, granted, this is part of encouraging others to behave in certain ways, as we are encouraged to do, but it's all in the how, right? It's all in the how, and it disappoints me quite a lot these days. I talked about this in a prior talk, that the quality of the public discourse has become so bad, and that there, it isn't really possible to engage in meaningful conversation about things that are really important, like killing or stealing or lying. Uh, it's very hard. And this is, uh, you know, this is uh, something unskillful in our society that will have unbeneficial consequences, already is. That's just how karma goes. So, the teachings on behavior, such as the precepts, I think they're very good. I think they're important. Um, but they don't seem to be as clear pointers toward the path to liberation as the teachings on skillfulness. Because if you're behaving in an unskillful way around the precepts, that is not furthering your path. That is not furthering the path to liberation. Um, and so be careful <laughs> how it's done. But please do uphold the precepts. I, uh, I encourage that. They're very good. See for yourself. So I wanted to offer um, some sutta passages that link unskillfulness with not being on the path and skillfulness with um, you know, moving toward liberation. There's a lot of them, but here's a, a couple. So bhikkhus, which means monks, but we can substitute practitioners. Meditators. Do not think evil, unwholesome thoughts, that is, sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harming. For what reason? These thoughts are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the spiritual life, and do not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, 
to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. When you think, you should think, this is suffering. You should think, this is the origination of suffering. You should think, this is the cessation of suffering. You should think, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. For what reason? These thoughts are beneficial, relevant to the spiritual, the fundamentals of the spiritual life, and lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So very directly it says, if you think unwholesome thoughts, and that word is akusala, um, they're not relevant to your spiritual development. They don't lead toward awakening. And then conversely, it's interesting, it doesn't say you should just think wholesome thoughts. It says you should think thoughts about the Four Noble Truths in particular. This is suffering, this is the origination, this is the cessation, this is the way. So if you focus your mind on something skillful, like what is, what are the, what is the Four Noble Truths, and um, that is what leads, is beneficial and leads along the path and ends up, leads to its unfolding. And let me be clear that when it says, because um, it's not as clear in English, when you, th when you think you should think this is suffering, it really means this, not like an abstract idea. Oh yeah, I think suffering is like when people are starving. I mean, you can think that, but it's probably better than thinking other things. But what they really mean by this is this. <laughs> like right now, what, what is happening in your experience? It's not an abstract idea. So we can, for example, um, we can experience anger and we can have the thought, this is suffering. <laughs> wow, you know, I feel tense, I feel hot, I feel contracted. This is suffering. And then we could maybe, because we're being skillful at that moment and being mindful, we could also open to the fact that the mind is mindful. So the mind is angry, we're mindful of it. We could feel the anger as suffering or we could feel the mindfulness as the path. We can also say, this is the way leading to the end of suffering. This awareness that I have of the anger, that's the path. Be happy. <laughs> And then later the anger ends. The moment the anger ends, that's cessation. This is the cessation of suffering. This, right now, my suffering is ceasing. So, I should say this suffering is ceasing, right, not mine. So, um, it's pointing to the direct experience. It's not an abstract idea, uh, like killing is suffering or something like that. Yeah, so, um, so that's useful. And then here's another one, meditators. Whatever states there are that are skillful, partaking of the skillful, and that is kusala, pertaining to the skillful, they are all rooted in diligence, converge upon diligence, and diligence is declared the chief among them. When a person is diligent, it is expected that she will develop and cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. So there's another case where skillful, in this case, is linked to diligence, but then that's linked to the seven factors of enlightenment, which are the factors of mind that arise as it travels the path. Those get increasingly strong as the mind is walking the path, and they become more and more a part of our normal way of being. So and what if, if you trace that back, what does it start with? Where, wherever states, whatever states there are that are skillful, that's the foundation for that progression so you see this again and again in the suttas, is that skillful and unskillful are linked to whether or not the mind is on or not on the path. And 
the precepts are considered more about, uh, you know, are you living a good lay life? Are you laying the foundation for being able to cultivate skillfulness? Of course, the precepts are skillful to do if you do them without clinging. So that's interesting, right? And then I'll throw in, um, just because it was very recent for me, two other observations. I've been doing some study this weekend, some practice this weekend in um, uh, some group uh, insight practice techniques. Yesterday we did uh, some insight dialogue together and in a small group. And that's a particular technique where you are meditating while you're speaking with someone. You throw out all the social conventions about how you speak and you actually just speak straight from the heart, speak the Dharma. And I felt, um, I noticed during this, as my partner, it's always done with one partner, as far as I know, um, that as she would speak about, she was just speaking about her experience. She wasn't trying to tell me anything. But she was speaking about, for example, she said that she had tension in her head as she was being mindful. And I felt my own attention go to my head. It didn't produce tension at that moment, but my, my awareness went up to my head because she said that. And then she said something about, uh, I, felt, I feel, oh, now some heat moving down into my belly. And I felt my awareness also go there and resonate a little bit with that. And so when one is very open with another person like that, um, my learning at that moment was, oh, this has a lot to do with sila, actually, with ethics, because we are inevitably, obviously, and you don't need to know this, where you don't need to, you need to understand it directly, not cognitively, but I think we all get cognitively that we influence each other. Every moment, just being in someone's presence, you feel a little bit, mere neurons or whatever, if you want the biological, but there's more than that, I think. We are resonating somehow spiritually. And so, you know, we can't help necessarily what's going on in our mind. If she has tension or whatever, okay. If she has anger, okay. It's good to acknowledge that. But I'm going to feel a little bit of that. Um, and so then this suddenly helped me realize, oh, of course, cultivating states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, what am I putting out into the world? You know, obviously I have a strong motivation to do that to reduce my own suffering. But uh, for sure, we influence others. If we're carrying around a lot of impatience, anger, frustration, um, judgment, if that's just our natural mind state, don't think you're the only one who's feeling that. You're sending that out in ways that resonate with other people silently, somehow, under the radar. So this has interesting implications for you. It's good to maybe useful to contemplate about that a bit, um, especially given that we don't have total control over what goes on in our minds and neither do the people we're talking with. So how do we hold that? Compassion, maybe. Stronger awareness, because the more aware we are, the less we're going to get sucked in to negative states that we're in contact with. So it's also quite um, beneficial to cultivate mindfulness. So that protects us and them. And then I thought I'd also throw in, because I'm putting a lot of stuff in here, <laughs> um, this uh, teaching that, um, that we just read this morning 
uh, this is part of what's called Dhamma contemplation, where you read suttas um, and reflect on them. This is done in a big group, not with a partner. Um, and so one of the, the reason I'm reading this is that uh, it's from a sutta where you're supposed to check out whether or not somebody is a good teacher. And the way you check that out, you understand that for yourself, is you observe that person and you see whether or not um, they seem to be relatively purified from states based on greed, hatred, or delusion. Being aware also that we are not perfect judges of that unless we have purified our own mind. So remember that, what do we say? We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. So if we're consistently thinking that everybody around us is really greedy, that might tell you something about your own mind, <laughs> okay? And if you think everyone around you is, is very deluded, well, look at them, look in the mirror. But nonetheless, this, this passage is about somebody who has decided that um, the teacher is purified enough from states of greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, and it says what goes on from there. And remember, greed, hatred, and delusion are related to kusala. They're related to, or akusala. They're related to the unskillful roots, and someone who doesn't have them would be acting from the skillful kusala roots. And so again, we have a connection to the path. So the sutta says, and I'll, it's, it's written in the female form, so I'll read it that way. When she has investigated her, so meaning when the practitioner has investigated the teacher, and has seen that she is purified from states based on greed, hatred, and delusion, then she places faith in her. Filled with faith, she visits and pays respect to her. Having paid respect to her, she gives ear. When she gives ear, she hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, she memorizes it and examines the meaning of the teachings she has memorized. When she examines their meaning, she gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings. When she has gained a reflective acceptance, she gained, she zeal springs up. When zeal has sprung up, she applies her will. Having applied her will, she scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, she strives. Resolutely striving, she realizes with the body the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. In this way, we describe the discovery of truth. So there's a whole progression. Obviously, you don't need to memorize and go through every step necessarily, but I think it's a very beautiful passage that, um, you know, based on some sense of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, that awakens in us the desire to walk the path. And then this tells how. You should go and hear the Dharma. You should think about it, decide it works for you, take it in, and then practice. And then there's the realization. So in a very real sense, in a very basic sense, whether you're a teacher or not, cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion creates the conditions for the path to ripen in some people in the world. That's pretty good. So all of us are participating in that to the degree that uh, we are working on being skillful and doing things from the skillful roots. So I'll stop there because I want to um, have a chance to hear from some of you your own wisdom. But I'm curious, you know, how do you feel about skillfulness or wholesomeness? How do you feel about the precepts? How do you hold them? I mean, how do you... Uh, 
benefit from them in your life, would you change anything about the precepts or about skillfulness and wholesomeness? Just any reflections on that or anything else? Yeah, Jean. So the, the skillfulness, the kusala, is that K-U-S-U-L-A? K-U-S-A-L-A. Um, contextual? It is somewhat contextual, mm-hmm. yeah. And there's teachings about that. I'm not just oh, saying that. It is. Like, for example, I mean, an extreme example is that you wouldn't behave in the same way around a group of four-year-olds as around a, a group of army generals. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Different groups of people, you might say, and do different things, right? That's basic enough, but then... You know, within that, there's how does one behave with non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion to each of those groups. It is a slippery slope, right? A slippery slope, did you say? In what sense? Say more about that. Because some people will defend their own actions and still claim that they, because of the conflict. Yes. Yeah. Yes, this is a good point. So I, I approach this talk from the direction of saying the precepts are a little bit um, abstract and therefore we can have more context if we use skillfulness. You're pushing to the other side and saying, well, but you know, if it's only relative, then uh, there's a lot of room for delusion there um, because we could, yeah, we could decide to, you know, we could make up, basically make up the ethical rules as we wanted them to benefit us. So there are luckily um, guards against that happening. Um, In particular, this focus on the motivation of greed, hatred, and delusion. Mindfulness has a way of correcting over time our delusion, luckily. Um, Also, we are never told that we are the final judge of whether something was skillful. That's interesting. So a little bit, your, your sense of this slippery slope relies on us being able, us also being the authority of whether or not our action was skillful. Mm -hmm. And the teachings don't actually ever say that. They say that you should, first of all, you need to check with wise people. So there's some sense that there are people who have done some cultivation and that they would have a better idea about that than we would. Um, And then there's also the, always the requirement to check whether or not we're, our suffering is increasing. And if we're really, really, um, you know, interested in uh, reducing suffering, if that's really sincerely our aim, we will not be able to be unwholesome and and unskillful and unethical, because those actually cause us harm. And so that's all again part of this idea of the path is that. If you're, um, there, I mean, basically the, the teachings say, because that's so integral, I'll return to what I started with, is that it's considered integrated into the path. There's no way you could get enlightened and be unethical. It's not possible. You can do a lot of things and be unethical. You can also do a lot of things ethically and not get enlightened necessarily. But if you walk the path, if you do this with the intention of walking the path, it will purify out um, the ways in which we're hedging around that um, I mean, I've seen in my own practice, just in the short time I've practiced and walked the path, ways in which um, 
my, I don't consider that I was extremely unethical ever in my life, particularly relative to what I see in the world. But I had delusion about various things, being skillful or not, and I eventually came to realize that there were ways in which I was behaving that weren't skillful. And sometimes I, I had the help of a teacher. Like I'll give an example. Is that, um, this is very early in my practice. I went into a practice discussion with a certain teacher and I wanted to connect with them. You know, so my aim was kind of wholesome. Like I wanted to, I didn't know the teacher very well. And so I came in and I, I made a joke and I kind of tried to um, engage them on a level of uh, having a joke together. And the teacher um, you know, didn't exactly reject that, but they didn't engage in that. And they, um, you know, they, they kind of deflected state equanimous. And I eventually I realized that my attempt was not working. And so I, I settled down and was more, had more tranquility to that. But I, I feel appreciative that they didn't follow the social convention where you just laugh when somebody laughs or somebody comes and they make a joke, you sort of go, oh, ha, ha, ha. You know, you feel like you need to go along with that. They, you know, they were teaching me to come in a little bit more sincerely, a little bit more maturely. And so in the, um, you know, in retrospect, I see that there was some delusion uh, mixed in with my desire to connect because my way of doing it was not very skillful. So, um, you know, so we learn over time, especially, and that required the help of somebody who had a little far more experience on the path saying, hey, that's not that skillful. I'm not going to mirror that. And then when you don't get the mirroring, you have to look back. <laughs> so... Um, this is how we help each other on the path, and it guards, in the long run, mindfulness guards against the slippery slope, but thank you for bringing that up. Anything else? Yeah. Um, yesterday, um, you know, I did the, there's a spider in the non-killer waves to put the cup over, and I've done that my whole life, but this time I did it, and I wasn't patient, because I was worried about things going on around me. And um, so I was impatient, it was really fast, and I caught him on the edge of the glass, and then I was clumsy with how I put the thing in. And so when I threw it out, he was like dead, and I felt terrible about that. I felt more terrible than if I just stomped on him with my foot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, but I think but it, it would have been worse if you'd stomped on him. Yeah. yeah maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you saw, well, you saw the cause, and you saw yeah. the impatience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these things happen, um, but feeling some shame about that is actually okay on the path. That's considered, um, even though it's unpleasant, I know, um, it's considered skillful. So skillful and pleasant don't always go together. Yeah, but I, I've done that too. Yeah. So was it cocoa? Huh? Same, same feeling as the cocoa. Well, I've never tried that with the... Approach. They're pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just they isn't really doing that perfect. <laughs> yeah, Jane, you had one more. I think you brought this up a few minutes ago, but I think the precepts are extremely helpful. I think so too. Um, because there's a tendency to want to dominate in certain situations. And that comes up, so then you don't, or I don't. Like, I mean, I, um, 
had an interesting experience over the way in the last few days and um, shared a room with someone. And after dinner on um, Friday, I, we were in bed and I felt extraordinarily nauseous. And I got up and vomited. And of course, the bathroom was right there, you know, right around the corner from the room. And when I got back to bed, I found myself saying, I'm so sorry because I know how unpleasant that is to hear. I said it to her. And um, I was really almost amazed that I said that. I mean, mm -hmm. because it is unpleasant. But I could see that she became a. I was aware of how she might be feeling about hearing this. Yeah. And that's part of it, too. It's part of the, right? Yeah. And the understanding, pleasant, unpleasant. The, and how is that? What do you mean, how is that? How is that for another person? Yeah. So being aware of your impact right. on others. Absolutely. We get much more sensitive about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry you had a lousy night. Yeah, to see yourself. Yeah. Didn't it wasn't that I was feeling sorry for myself. I didn't like no, it. I, I understood how she might be relating to it. Yeah, and it's significant that even in a situation, I'll just point out, where you were feeling um obviously not at your best, uh, so you were suffering and yet you could think of her also. That's actually um, shows some expansion of ethics um, because there's a way in which our own pain can, be, can make us become more selfish um, and that's just natural, it's, it's not wrong to do that, but uh, you had a wider understanding even at that moment to, to be praised. Not to say it's direct, but it's indirect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also have a great appreciation of the precepts, especially in their abstention form, because they're clear. Mm -hmm. Like I said, to say to abstain from killing, that's pretty clear. Sometimes people add in the more flowery, and I vow to support life. It's like, well, what does it mean to support life? You know, that is not that that's a bad thing to think about, but it's a lot, it's not as clear as. Refraining from killing. Did she have something else, Catherine? Um, she just made me think. Um, so you were tuning into how your roommate felt, and I, I think if most of us tuned into, like you were saying, the way we feel, we may feel angry when we're not the only one that feels angry. We're spreading that anger. That's right. That's what we're putting out. Yeah, and you know, sometimes you're around someone who is just filled with a peace that it makes you feel so peaceful. Yeah, there's the positive side also. Right, and I feel like that if we practice being aware of what we are emanating, that's more, so much more productive than the people protesting and walking around with signs because what they're emanating is anger, basically, if they're holding signs for peace. I just feel like the way you can spread loving kindness is by being loving kindness. It's easier said than that, but I'm just thinking that what we emanate... It certainly makes a difference. Um, 
there's still room for skillful and unskillful within that, in that um, we could decide in advance that we are only going to emanate good qualities and then we are deluding ourselves because in reality we're supposed to be with things as they are. And so there is um, the, the cultivation of loving kindness um, such that it becomes a natural quality, but to try to force it all the time um, is actually going to be harmful for us. But I, I'm just adding that qualification with basically that what you're saying is true as long as we're still being with how things are yeah, and not denying or suppressing things in us that are actually there. Yeah. I think we need to stop. I see this is a good topic. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.